Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. We are special breakfast people here at Pantsu Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth. It makes it feel special, makes it feel exciting. I don't want to work at it. So the first time I ever saw Wild Grain, which is bake from frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries. I was obsessed. You guys, I've been a member for over a year. It's amazing. It's so easy. Every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less. No thawing required. You can fully customize your wild grain box. You can choose any combination of breads, pastas, pastries. You can even build a box of only breads, only pastas, or only pastries if you'd like. And for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit to start your subscription. Sometimes I make one single croissant just for me because I want to feel special and they're so good. You heard me. Free croissants in every box and $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. Hi everyone, it's Beth here for a primer on the United States relationship with Iran. If you've listened to our primer episodes before, you know the drill. I am not an expert on anything. I have just done some research. I did consult with Carrie Boyd Anderson, who is a wonderful friend of the podcast and an expert on the Middle East. So thank you, Carrie, for all of your contributions to this primer. There is a lot to go through to help us understand the president's decision to withdraw from the JCPOA and what that means. So I'm actually going to be giving you two parts to this primer. Today, I am going to take us through the Reagan years. And then in part two, I will take us into the George Bush administration and the growing sense of concern about Iranian nuclear capabilities through this week. So let's dive in. In typical fashion, I want to start with geography and some just basic facts about Iran as a country. 
Iran's official name is the Islamic Republic of Iran. It is also sometimes known as Persia. 81 million people live in Iran, which is about the number of people who live in California, Texas, and Florida combined. In terms of land, Iran is a little smaller than the state of Alaska. Economically, Iran is very important for a couple of reasons. After Egypt, it's the most populous Middle Eastern state, and it is very centrally located in Western Asia, making it an important geostrategic location, and you see that throughout its history. It is situated along major trade routes, and that has really influenced European interest in Iran. To the northwest, Iran is bordered by Armenia and the Republic of Azerbaijan. To the north, by the Caspian Sea, Turkmenistan borders it on the northeast. Afghanistan and Pakistan are on its east borders. The Persian Gulf and Gulf of Oman are on the southern border, and Turkey and Iraq make up Iran's western border. Iran has rugged terrain covered by mountains and plateaus. One of its salty desert sandstone plateaus is one of the hottest places on Earth during the summer. And Iran sits on the scene between the Eurasian and Arabian tectonic plates, causing numerous very, very severe and deadly earthquakes. Iran is a very young country, like much of the Middle East. About 60% of the population is under 30. The median age in Iran is 30, which you can compare to 37.8 in the United States. The majority of Iranians are Persian, but there are significant ethnic and linguistic minorities, including Kurds, Azaris, Baluchis, Armenians, Arabs, and others. Iran's economy is dominated, as you probably know, by oil and gas production. About 10% of the world's oil reserves and 15% of the world's gas reserves are in Iran. The majority of Iran's economy is centrally planned. There is a lot of government spending. There is control of about 20% of the GDP by banyads, charitable trusts that are tax-exempt and funnel money to support the Islamic Republic. Iran's economy has suffered from mismanagement and corruption for decades. Price controls, subsidies, and international sanctions have caused economic hardship in Iran. It's really hard to get good numbers because the government gets involved in the economy informally, formally. You have religious group involvement. It's very complicated and confusing. And the current president, Rouhani, was elected both to try to improve relations with the West, to end sanctions on Iran, and to try to improve the economy overall. He has very significantly improved economic management. Inflation is now lower in Iran. He's trying to better manage currency rates and boost the private sector. He's trying to address corruption, including highlighting the problem of the government informally meddling in the economy. He's done pretty well on the macroeconomic numbers, but like we talk about on the podcast, people don't live in averages, and so you still have many Iranians suffering economically, and probably the reimposition of sanctions against Iran by the United States will really hurt Rouhani and his moderate political efforts. The history of Iran is incredibly complicated, and it does not get easier to narrow it down to U.S. history with Iran. 
please keep in mind throughout this that I am trying to just set the stage for our two countries' relationships. There are major chapters in Iran's history that I am leaving out here because there's just too much to talk about in a podcast format. So to get to our history with Iran, I need to tell you that in the early 1900s, Iran became a constitutional monarchy. A shah, essentially a king or emperor, remained in power, but a constitution with limited power was enacted and a parliament convened. And during that period, oil was discovered in Iran. In what was called the Great Game, the UK and Russia fought over control of parts of the Middle East. This was a colonial competition. Britain was trying to establish a new trade route to create a buffer against Russian control of parts of the Middle East. Russia wanted trade routes through the Middle East. A series of wars occurred in which Britain tried to take control of several Middle Eastern countries. This period in history is very critical to understanding Afghanistan, but that is another podcast. Britain lost all four of those wars. It was kind of a humiliating ordeal. The Great Game ended with a division of zones in Iran between Britain and Russia, and this caused a real loss of self-determination in Iran. During World War I, Iran was essentially neutral. Following the war, Reza Khan, a military officer, orchestrated a coup and came to power as the new Shah. From 1925 to 1941, he led Iran's government in a very authoritarian way. He valued nationalism, militarism, and secularism. He brought about many reforms. He also governed in essentially a police state. And because he was a secular leader, he bred a lot of resentment among traditional Muslim leaders. During World War II, Germany was quite powerful in Iran, and Iran really didn't resist German control. It officially remained neutral in the war, but Britain and Russia demanded that Iran expel German forces, and Iran refused to do it. So the Allied forces invaded Iran, overpowered its weak army, and established Iran as a major conduit between Britain and the Soviet Union. You have to think about Iran's perspective. It's been criticized so much for not resisting German forces, but... Iran has just experienced the UK and Russia as occupiers and invaders and colonialists. So Germany was kind of a convenient enemy to pit against them. After the war, the Allies declared that Iran was free and independent, but the Soviet Union hung around, backed some revolts to establish pro-Soviet states, and angled for control of oil fields. And Great Britain maintained a significant degree of influence. Reza Khan's son... Mohammad Reza Shah came to power, and Iran's government became very unstable for a period of years following World War II. All during this time, Iran and the United States get along pretty well. Iran trusts the United States more than the British or the Soviets. The United States hadn't been involved in the Great Game. And relations remain positive even through the Allied forces invasion of Iran during World War II. This brings us into the 1950s. As Iran continued to work towards stability in its constitutional monarchy, Western firms were mostly in control of the wealth related to oil and gas in the Middle East, which meant that the standard of living in the West, fueled literally and metaphorically by Iranian oil, was much higher than the standard of living in the Middle East. 
In late 1950, an American company in Saudi Arabia succumbed to pressure and agreed to start sharing oil revenue with the Saudis. This put a lot of pressure on British-owned companies in Iran to do the same, but the British had no interest in sharing revenue and refused to do so. So Iran is a constitutional monarchy with a parliament, democratically elected prime minister. The prime minister at the time, Mohammad Mossadegh, decided in a very popular move to nationalize the oil and gas industry. Mossadegh said that Iranian people should not be suffering while the British are profiting off Iranian oil and that he was going to put an end to this. And this really appealed to the Iranian populace for many reasons, all of which I think are completely understandable, especially as you start reflecting on Iran's history with the UK and Russia. This action of nationalizing the oil and gas industry led the United States CIA and the British intelligence agency MI6 to start working on a plan to overthrow Prime Minister Mossadegh and restore a monarchy in Iran under the Shah. This was mostly about oil. The Cold War was also a factor. The United States worried that the Soviet Union would come in and control Iran, which would have been a huge setback. Uh, Winston Churchill and parts of MI6 believed that Mossadegh was moving Iran in the direction of communism. And so concerns about communism plus major angst about oil, fueled this plot to take down Mossadegh. The CIA and MI6 started planting anti-Mossadegh stories in Iranian and U.S. media outlets to prepare for a coup. And in an operation known as Ajax in August of 1953, a coup was attempted and it failed quickly. Lots of people were arrested. The Shah actually fled the country. And the CIA said, okay, we're calling this thing off. They sent a cable on August 18th to the station chief in Iran that was declassified just last year. So last year when this was declassified, we learned that the cable said, operation has been tried and failed, and we should not participate in any operation against Mossadegh, which could be traced back to the U.S. Operations against Mossadegh should be discontinued. Pretty clear. But the top CIA officer in Iran at the time was a guy named Kermit Roosevelt, and he decided that he did not want to follow that cable. He received it and ignored it. And the very next day, crowds that were believed to have been rented and orchestrated by the CIA and MI6 overthrew the prime minister. Prime Minister Mossadegh, remember, hugely popular guy, was jailed. The Shah returned and the monarchy was restored and British Petroleum tried to reclaim its oil fields. This event was traumatizing for Iran. Mossadegh had been a symbol of independence, and Iran had elected him democratically. So for Iranians, it's very hard to hear the United States talk about the benefits of democracy in the world when they blame us for essentially having cratered their democracy over oil. Okay, so after this happened, the Shah, Mohammad Reza Pavlavi, became one of the United States' closest allies. He oversaw massive reforms economically, socially, and politically. 
He started what has been called the White Revolution because it was not violent, working on land reform and infrastructure. He gave women the right to vote. He formed literacy and health corps in rural areas. He nationalized a bunch of industries. The economy skyrocketed during this period. But these reforms weren't just about creating a modern Iran. They were also about cementing the Shah's power and legacy. He really wanted to be seen as a strong man, and he talked about his appointment by God to save Iran and to bring Iran to Western standards of living. He was known as kind of a playboy and and an airhead who needed help making decisions when he first came to power, but he grew to be really embraced by leaders across the world. There are some shocking quotes from U.S. citizens praising the Shah during this period. He dealt with external pressure constantly. At one point, he sensed that the United States wasn't being supportive enough of Iran's security, so he considered entering into a non-aggression pact with the Soviet Union. President Eisenhower told him not to sign it and made some sort of vague threats about what would happen if he did, so he didn't sign it, which led to Nikita Khrushchev calling for his overthrow and assassination. The Shah also, despite being a reformer, created a brutal police state. His police force was organized with the help of the CIA and Israel's intelligence agency. Any critics of the Shah, religious, secular, democratic, were in deep danger. Opponents of the regime were tortured and executed. This police force censored media, screened applicants for government jobs, and hunted down dissidents. Their power was virtually unlimited. They closely collaborated with the CIA and sent agents to an Air Force base in New York to share and discuss interrogation tactics that included various forms of torture. The Shah was kind of a classic case of a modernizer who did some great things, but was brutal and too disconnected from his people to understand that not everyone was benefiting from his economic reforms and not everyone was happy with his cultural reforms. So lots of people are angry with the Shah, especially hardline Islamists who believed that allowing women to vote was unforgivable. The Shah's economic programs were too ambitious and created expectations that were too high. There was enormous inflation, and then the economy tanked in 1977 and 78. His regime was extravagant. He held all kinds of summits and parties that people saw as ridiculous. And his regime was repressive. He was seen as too close to the United States, especially the Carter administration. His land reforms kind of backfired on him and produced lots of people who didn't feel any sense of loyalty to him. And Shia Islam was on the rise. The Shia clergy seized on an interest in populism and nationalism, and they cultivated a sense that Western culture was a plague, that Islam was the only way to liberate the Middle East from colonialism, that both capitalism and communism were wrong, and that revolt and martyrdom against injustice were part of the Islamic faith. Just finished A Court of Thorns and Roses and craving another fantasy world to devour? Dipsy's got you. Dive into spicy enemies to lovers' tales or embark on an epic romance between immortal fae and sworn foes. They've got fantasy romance stories perfect for your morning walk, late night, or long bath. Dipsy is an app full of short, spicy audio stories. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters, 
Discover stories about second chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups. And there's a growing library of fantasy series with werewolves, Greek gods and goddesses, Regency-era historical fiction, and fairy smut to explore the bounds of your pleasure. New content is released every week, so in between listening to your favorite stories again and again, you can always find something new to explore. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to dipseastories.com slash pantsuit. dipseastories.com slash pantsuit. If you're looking for a very quick salon quality, but not salon priced manicure, Olive and June has you covered. We've talked about Olive and June's Manny system before. It has everything that you need for a professional manicure in one box, salon grade tools, your choice of six polishes. Those polishes are gonna last you for seven days or more. The cost breaks down to about $2 a manicure. Olive and June also has press-ons if you want. What I love though, is that Olive and June each season is coming out with new colors. And I just got a set of spring and summer colors in quick dry polish. And they say this dries in about a minute. It seemed dry to me in about 30 seconds. It was not kidding about being quick dry. I also love the light colors in this set. There is a huge range. My favorite one is called Kitten. It's like a pinkish gray. The quick dry polish gives you full coverage in one or two coats. It lasts for more than five days and it is offered in more than 40 cruelty-free and vegan polishes. Olive and June just understands what's happening in our lives, that we need to move quickly, but we want to look great and feel great and have fun in the process. Visit oliveandjune.com slash pantsuit for 20% off your first system. That's O-L-I-V-E-A-N-D-J-U-N-E dot com slash P-A-N-T-S-U-I-T for 20% off your first Manny system. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Can I get something off my chest? Every day I feel a little pang of sadness because I think about Griffin going away to college. Y'all, he's a freshman in high school. This is not healthy or normal. This is why I have it on my list of things to talk to my therapist about. We all carry around these things, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us. Therapy is a safe space to get these things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. You gotta get it off your chest. And you can get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash pantsy. So this is when Ayatollah Khomeini starts to become a leader of an opposition movement. Khomeini was a Shia cleric who had opposed the Shah's regime. He had a sense that Muslims and really everyone required supervision through government to ensure that Sharia law is adhered to, which he saw as the only way to eliminate colonialism. So this concept is known as the Islamic jurist. So you've got this populist, hardline religious faction developing, and then you have more constitutional liberals who were opposed to the Shah, and you had Marxist groups opposed to the Shah. In this growing sense of instability, 
In January of 1978, an article was published written by a government agent that insulted Khomeini. It called him a British agent and a mad Indian poet. Seminary students who read this article were hugely upset and ended up having a skirmish with the police that turned violent. The Iranian government says that two students were killed in this clash, but depending on who you talk to in the opposition, it was anywhere between 70 and 500 students. Khomeini kind of took the opportunity to increase his movement. He used the memorial services for these students to consolidate mosques and bazaars all over Iran. And 40 days later, protests and riots broke out in cities all across the country. The government responded through this very brutal police force. The government says six people were killed. The opposition says hundreds were. And then you got into this pattern. Every 40 days, there were huge demonstrations and riots that turned violent. And then 40 days later, there were more. The Shah really wanted to remain in power. And so he tried to negotiate with the opposition. He promised fully democratic elections in 1979. He relaxed censorship. He tried to clean up some corruption. His police forces remained excessively violent, so he fired lots of officials in his police force and other unpopular government workers. And for a while, things calmed down. It looked like he had negotiated his way out of the situation. In fact, the American CIA concluded that Iran was not in a, quote, revolutionary or even pre-revolutionary state. But then in August... Four arsonists set a movie theater on fire in the city of Abadan. 422 people burned to death in that fire. Khomeini blamed the Shah and the police force. Many people now believe that Islamist militants actually set that fire. We don't know, but we know that Iran was primed to turn against the Shah, and that's what happened. This incident reignited protests and all kinds of conflicts escalated. And lots of different factions, leftists, intellectuals, Marxists, and hardline Islamists came together to oppose the Shah. Meanwhile, the Carter administration really didn't know what to do with all of this. They were taken completely by surprise. They had long had this warm relationship with the Shah, but they didn't want to support him if he appeared doomed. And there were people in the Carter administration who thought both that the writing was on the wall for the Shah and some of them thought that Khomeini would actually create a democracy in Iran that should be supported. So ultimately, the United States really didn't do much to help the Shah kind of backed the opposition and kind of stayed with the Shah. It kind of depends on who you read in terms of what the United States role was here. But ultimately, the Shah left Iran in exile for Egypt on January 16, 1979. And then this leaves the different factions to fight out who's going to take control of Iran. In the midst of that, in October of 1979, President Carter allowed the Shah to come to the United States for cancer treatment. He had advanced malignant lymphoma, and President Carter thought that this was a humanitarian move, not a political one. But Iranians were outraged. They demanded that the Shah be returned to Iran for trial and execution, and the whole situation reminded them of the overthrow of Mossadegh and 
the United States' interference in their politics and the Shah coming to power. On November 4th, a group of Iranian students, the Muslim student followers of the Imam's line, took control of the U.S. embassy in Iran. They held the entire embassy staff hostage. Thirteen of the hostages were released after a somewhat short period of time. These hostages were women, African Americans, and citizens of other countries. Khomeini said that those folks were already subject to American oppression. So that's his perspective. A 14th hostage was released after developing health problems. But 52 people were held in that embassy for 444 days. Khomeini supported the hostage-taking. He called the United States the Great Satan. The U.S. really failed in response to the situation. The Carter administration tried diplomacy. It tried economic sanctions. It tried military action in an operation called Eagle Claw, where an elite rescue team was supposed to enter the embassy. But a severe sandstorm the day of the mission caused helicopters to malfunction, So eight American service members died and the military mission was aborted. The hostages were freed immediately following Ronald Reagan's inaugural address. And there are suspicions that the Reagan team negotiated with Iran during the election to make this happen. But Reagan has always denied those allegations. From then until the early 1980s, Iran remained in chaos Various factions were fighting for control. There's so much to say about this period and especially about how women were involved. And I would love to talk about that someday. But for now, I want you to know that Khomeini and his people came out on top and then they killed, imprisoned, forced into exile or repressed their fellow revolutionaries who were now political rivals. He instituted religious rule in Iran. He rewrote the Constitution and closed newspapers. He attacked and banned opposition political parties. He disqualified candidates for office who were deemed un-Islamic and established a council to veto un-Islamic legislation. You probably also know from the Reagan years about the Iran-Contra scandal. During Reagan's second term in office, senior administration officials facilitated a sale of weapons to Iran in violation of an arms embargo. The objective of this sale was the release of seven American hostages being held by Hezbollah, a paramilitary group with Iranian ties in Lebanon. So the plan was essentially for the United States to have Israel ship weapons to Iran. And then the United States would resupply those weapons to Israel. And Israel would give the United States the money. The recipients of the weapons in Iran, in return, would do everything they could to work with Hezbollah to get those hostages in Lebanon released. Oliver North of the National Security Council, now the president of the National Rifle Association, worked on the plan. And he decided to use some of the money from this sale to fund the Contras in Nicaragua. I don't want to get too detoured here, but I feel like it would be incomplete not to say a little bit about this. The Contras were rebel groups, right-wing rebel groups, backed by the United States to oppose the socialist government in Nicaragua. President Reagan described the Contras as the moral equivalent of the Founding Fathers. But much of the Contras funding came from cocaine, and they committed all kinds of human rights abuses, and eventually Congress banned the United States supporting them. 
but the Reagan administration covertly continued that support. So the United States sells 1,500 missiles to Iran for $30 million, and Oliver North diverted $18 million of those dollars to the Contras. That's the scandal, which is another chapter in the very interrelated history of our two countries and prompts all kinds of interesting political discussion about the United States and the powers of the executive branch. In 1988, an American Navy ship mistakenly shot down an Iranian civilian plane. 290 people were killed. The United States said they thought that it was an attacking military jet and they were really sorry and financially compensated victims' families. In 1989, Khomeini died. More than 2 million Iranians mourned his death in the streets of Iran, and an elected body of clerics chose a new president. And that will wrap us up for today, and I will talk with you in our next primer about the Bush years all the way through President Trump's decision to exit the JCPOA. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, And Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you Ritual for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. There's not much worse than a dry energy scalp. Also, when you get your hair colored and then it does not last as long as you and your stylist discussed, it could be that unfiltered, mineral-filled water is the culprit. 
Hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry, irritated skin, and about 85% of the United States uses hard water, filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine. That's where Canopy's new filtered shower head comes in. Canopy, known for their beauty hacks and reimagined humidifier, has revolutionized the filtered shower head. Dermatologists recommended this unique three-stage filtration system greatly reduces contaminants and odors in your shower water, leaving you with healthy hair and glowing skin. Best of all, the Canopy filtered shower head is hassle-free. Installation is a breeze, and its unique quick-release filter replacement feature allows for seamless filter replacement unlike any others on the market. Go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy filtered showerhead purchase today with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, our listeners can use code Pantsuit at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you.